Hi and welcome back to Police Stories Podcast. This is episode 25, a series of short stories about my 28-year career, roughly, in the uh, UK Police Force across various forces, three different forces and different sort of uh, specialist units which we'll get onto. And I'm taking this pretty much as my career came. Um, so at this point in my career, we are... Um, I must have been about three years in, something like that. Um, and up until now, I've been doing you know the normal police work, normal response stuff, answering the 999 calls and enjoying it. I'd had probably uh, six months to a year, maybe, on the tutor unit, so looking after the new guys and girls that were coming in and sort of bringing them on and getting them up to a standard. Now, Already at this point in my career, I knew that I wasn't going to stay on response, you know, the sort of normal uniform policing, you know, the whole time. Some people do, you know, and that's absolutely fine. Everyone's different. And that is the beauty of the police. You know, it has so much range, you know, um, it doesn't matter what you want to do within the police. You know, chances are you can do it no matter what your interest is. And, and sometimes when you join, you don't really know. So you'll start off, you know. And while you're dealing with things through your daily sort of policing, you'll you'll see a unit, whether that's firearms, diving, you know, marine unit, close protection, you know, CID detectives, you know, scenes of crime stuff. It could be all sorts. And and while you're dealing with, you know, those sort of jobs that come up, you'll have a look at something, get chatting to maybe one of them and think, Do you know what, you know, that looks like a cracking job. I fancy a bit of that. So what happens within the police? is um, much like other organisations, I'm sure, you know, they advertise uh, internal jobs. Obviously, you know, invariably you have to be a police officer, you know, within that force to apply for all these jobs. But, you know, all these units have to, um, you know, have to advertise and, and continue their recruitment. Obviously, they have natural wastage, so they have people retiring out of the job and leaving and promoting and what have you. So that leaves positions. Now, some jobs are, you know, dead man's shoes, as they're called. You know, you basically have to wait until someone pretty much dies off, you know, before you're going to get a shot of that unit, depending on how big it is and how big your force is. So it can be frustrating if there's a job you really want to do, you know, but there's only, you know, five people in that force that do it. You know, it's, it's a very limited opportunity. And also what happens is as you get promoted, so those opportunities, you know, stop. You know, when I was on the Marine unit, there was maybe... 80 PCs at one point, you know, 80 sort of cops and perhaps 10 sergeants and one inspector, you know. So you can imagine if you're a sergeant, straight away there's now only 10 spaces for you. If you're an inspector, there's literally one opportunity for you to get onto that unit. So you pretty much have to make a decision, you know, do you want promotion or do you want sort of specialist units? Now, of course, a lot of people do the specialist units to start with and then as they get promoted, you know, they've kind of move on to the, the management side of it which ultimately as you go up through the ranks you become less and less a police officer and more and more a manager you know it is about like other businesses managing budgets and resources um, and that's no different in the police so certainly when you get to the higher echelons you know unless it's a really really high profile case you're not actually going to get involved on a sort of policing level um, but anyway so uh, yeah the police advertises these jobs and everyone gets an opportunity now when I tell people about my career just in normal sort of day-to-day -day chatting and you sort of, you know, they ask, well, what did you do? And you say, well, I did this and I did that. People go, wow, you're really lucky. You know, you had such a varied career. Well, that is true to a degree, but I can tell you none of those units came knocking at my door. You know, you have to put in a considerable amount of effort to get on those units. And then there's invariably, you know, quite a few courses you have to pass and then you have to 
continuation training, you know, and, and continue to refresh and pass courses as time goes on, because otherwise you either don't get to them in the first place or you will get binned out of that unit fairly quickly, you know, if you're not up to the standard. And you can imagine that's really important on, say, you know, the dive team or firearms, you know, you can't have someone who isn't up to the standard. Um, so, yeah, I would keep an eye on these these adverts that would come out, you know, for, for internal jobs, just to sort of see what it was about, really. And I never really, you know, thought I would be applying for too much because I didn't really know how it works. You've got to remember I'm kind of 24 at this point, something like that, with, you know, maybe three or four years in. Um, so, yeah, I was still pretty naive in the policing world. But I saw uh, an advert come up for um, a surveillance course, uh, a three-week surveillance course. And although it was advertised within the force, they said there was an opportunity to go on to potential sort of national surveillance jobs. Now, it's not something I'd really thought about. And lots of people envisage it, wow, that'd be really exciting, surveillance, you know, sneaking around and all that. And, and it is true, there is a lot of sneaking around. That's the nature of the beast. Um, but the vast majority of surveillance is kind of sat in a car or sat in a bush, you know, or sat in, you know, somebody's home address somewhere looking out of a window um, for hours and hours on end with absolutely nothing happening. But you do still need to be a certain type of person because you can't afford to be, you know, nowadays people might be tempted to, you know, look at phones or nod off, you know, especially if you've been on it for hours and it's overnight, if nothing's happening. But the reality is you have to be able to react very quickly and stay at a certain level of, um, you know, sort of consciousness for a start um, for that time. It's no good you've been sat on a job for eight hours and the person comes out and then one of the other people in your team says, I've just seen a guy that looks just like our target, you know, but you've been watching the address the whole time. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been watching the address. No one's come out having nodded off for 10 minutes. You know, you totally missed him. Um and uh, and sometimes, you know, that literally can have fatal consequences depending on what the job is. So, um, yeah, sounds exciting. The reality is surveillance is 99% utter boredom, you know, and either busting for the loo, being hungry, you know, gagging for a drink, any of those things. Um, and then 1%, you know, of absolute chaos and, you know, extreme excitement and adrenaline feels like, you know, it's uh, about to burst your heart. You know, it, it can really, really be a high level for a brief period of time. And it's being able to switch between those two. Um, so anyway, it's, it's simple. It's like most other, you know, external jobs. You put an application in and you sort of be asked, you know, well, why do you want to be surveillance and, and what experience have you got? And quite often it's none, you know. Um, although actually prior to joining the police, I'd been a, a store detective, you know, so both a uniform sort of security guard in shops and also a plain clothes store detective in quite a busy city. So I had a little bit of knowledge and understanding of, of what it might involve or some of the sort of tips and and tricks of the trade, um, but I had, you know, no clue really compared to to what the guys and girls knew that were on the teams already because they were, in, in, you know, fantastic at what they did, really, really good at what they did. So you put this application in, it goes through your line manager, which for most PCs will be a sergeant, you know, who kind of adds their own comments if they think you're suitable or not. I mean, they might be able to stop it at that point, the sergeant, and say, I don't think they're suitable, you know. Um, but invariably they'll put it through and it'll go into a pool and, you know, in a small force like I was at the time, um, probably 20 or 30 people perhaps applied. And there wasn't necessarily a job at the end of it either. It was this course and then depending on how you got on, you know, there might be some vacancies in the sort of county team or even going forward a national team. 
but but it might be that you sort of pass the course and then actually you come back to division and sort of do your normal day-to-day -day job. So um, I got through the paper sift and I was accepted onto an assessment day, which was off at headquarters for me. And when I turned up, there was about another dozen people, I suppose, there. Um, and it was various things that were tested. Memory was a big part of it. So um, on a couple of occasions, they would show us videos um, and it would just literally be either a video or a still shot of a table with maybe 10 everyday items on. So it'd be a paper clip, a rubber, a pencil, packet of cigarettes, a lighter, you know, anything and everything you can think of would be on the table. And you'd get to see that for maybe 30 seconds. Then they would take it away and they would ask you to write down what you'd seen. Now, um, you know, that can be incredibly difficult and, uh, you know, not everyone can do that. So I presume that sifted a few out. So we had a few of those. Then we were played some videos of um, things happening. And again, could be absolutely random things. Person walking down the street with a bag of shopping, going into a couple of shops, crossing the road, you know. Um, sometimes they're a bit more specific. They'd ask, tell us what you saw, what happened, but they might be a bit more specific. So they'd say, what was the colour of the car that came past? when the person crossed the road, you know, uh, what color was their shopping bag, you know, um, which shop did they go into? So it's just really to see sort of how observant you were and what your memory was like. So I went through those and answered a few of those. There was also um, some silhouettes. We were shown a series of car silhouettes um, and had to identify the make and model. There was quite a few of those. I think there was something like 50 odd maybe. Different cars we were shown from all sorts of angles, side view, sort of quartering rear view, front on, you know, all, all different directions. And again, they just wanted to know that did you have a reasonable knowledge of cars and were you able to pick them out from the silhouettes? I'm sure I didn't get them all right. Um, but again, a, a vital skill in relation to surveillance. So um, anyway, I filled out the forms and um, did the best I could. It's all you can ever do, isn't it? Let's face it. Um, and uh, about a week or so later, I, I had a letter through to say I'd been successful on the assessment day and the application. And I was invited to start a course in, you know, a month or two's time, a three week course. So I was quite excited at this. Um, didn't really know anyone that had been on surveillance, um, but you know, as a young cop, you know, I thought, oh, this will be exciting, you know, and, and certainly the course was very, very good. <clears throat> so initially we met up and there was about a dozen on the course. I recognised a few people um, from, uh, you know, the, the sort of assessment day. Not everyone had got through, presumably, and you, you never got told how you did, but I obviously did okay, you know, because I was accepted onto the course. Um, and we had obviously a bit of a briefing and they told us what it would involve and they said it's going to be very long days because that's part of the pressure. You know, they didn't say this to us, but the reality is when you're tired, you make mistakes. And they also want to see when you're tired, you've been working long shifts. How do you fit in on a team? You know, are you snappy? Are you going to get into little stupid arguments with your colleagues? Because no one wants to sit there and work with someone who's, you know, going to be arguing with them when you're 20 hours in. Do you know what I mean? Um, that was a long shift, but it wasn't unheard of. Um, so they had a really good look at you, to be honest with you. And the course involved a lot of people that were on the actual surveillance team anyway. So they were kind of instructors, but they were also sort of, you know, teaching you things that went along. It was a really, really good course. Um, now, you might think uh, in your mind, surveillance, oh, well, you know, I've seen that on the telly. They have newspapers and they cut eye holes in the paper and then they peer through the paper, you know. And uh, always someone sat on a hill with a great big pair of binoculars, you know. Well, probably not the papers thing. Sat on the hill with the binoculars, not impossible, yeah. Um, 
but uh, you know, there's a lot of sort of stuff that happens on the telly, and again, it drives me mad on on the police dramas and things. And you're like, it wouldn't happen like that. That is rubbish. You know, I love how you see uh, people that are doing surveillance on a car. You know, and they're right behind it with a handheld radio in their hand. You know, speaking and updating on the radio. I mean, that just wouldn't happen. The one thing I would say is, you know, the guys and girls that do surveillance are absolutely fantastic at their job. You know. Um, and they very, very rarely get pinged, as we would call it, i.e. the target has realised they are being surveilled. You know, that is incredibly rare because they're so good at their job. Um, so what does a surveillance officer look like? Well, it's a good question and the reality is obviously absolutely anything. But there's certain things they'd shy away. Now, probably in the application process, they would never admit to this but I can almost guarantee that some people were shaved off that course because of how they looked. Because what they want is the absolute gray man. If you are very tall, very short, particularly muscular, you know, you have a certain hairstyle, you know, you dressed in a certain way. Now, obviously clothes can be changed, but what they don't want is someone who stands out in any way at all. And uh, so they're really looking for this person who just blends in Mr. or Mrs. Average. You know, they want as many females as they do males because um, certainly if you're together, male and female together, that's great, you know, because obviously you look like a couple. Um, so that works really well in cars. Um, but uh, you can change clothes and appearances. There was always a sort of long-standing joke that sort of plain clothes, firearms officers always look the same. You know, they had almost a uniform they would wear like, Berghouse walking boots, jeans, a Berghouse fleece, you know, and you could pick them out a mile off. And I have to say, kind of looking around some of the courses, you know, they were right. That's how it looked. Um, but the thing is that they do not want any sort of names um, or, or anything like that that's recognisable. Because we had a couple turn up, you know, especially the young ones. And I, you know, I was young at that time, but I was never a, a fashion victim like some of these people. You know, they turned up in their best, you know, tracksuit and their Adidas trainers or their, you know, whatever it was, Nike baseball cap or, or whatever they were wearing. The problem is that's all very well. And in certain areas you might blend in. But what you don't know is anything about your target. Now, for all you know, your target is like really into baseball caps or trainers or, you know, a particular brand of something, Reebok or whatever it is. Um, so you can imagine if you're wearing these latest sort of Gucci, you know, Reebok trainers that are all the rage and you're feeling all chuffy yourself because of how fashionable you are. You can imagine if you're surveilling someone and you're behind them in a town, especially a fairly small town centre, um, and there they go into, I don't know, a music shop, you know, and start looking round at, and this is obviously, you can tell how much I'm going back now, music shops with, you know, records in and CDs and things. Um, if you're in there with these trainers on and you're looking at your target and more importantly, he's looking at you, if he's into those trainers, you know, and he's into those sorts of things, he'll remember them. So now tomorrow or next week or next month, when he's in another town, in another store, you know, in a supermarket or whatever, picking up cigarettes or whatever he's getting. If he then sees those trainers again, particularly if they're a bit unusual, they're going to stick in his mind. So that gets him thinking. And now he might sort of follow up from your shoes to your face. And, it, you know, if he switched on, he might be thinking, I've seen those trainers before. You know, you don't see many there about. Where did I see him? Think a week ago. And then they'll look at you and think, I've seen this guy before. So if this is, you know, a master criminal who is out doing their thing and they're particularly switched on and surveillance aware, they might be thinking, hang on a sec, this guy was behind me 
in that little village in the middle of nowhere. And now here he is again in another town a week later. Suddenly you are pinged, you know, you are very much. We had what was called an ex exposure clock. So um, you could afford to walk past the target, you know, once, but your exposure clock, you know, would get a lot hotter. That person is, you know, well sort of used to or has very much seen you. Not a problem if you're not doing anything stupid like walking down the road with a police radio in your hand. Um, like you see on the telly. But, um, you know, that person is now aware of you. So your exposure clock is, a clock is at maximum, you know, and what you can't afford to do is be seen again. So it might be, if you had a really high, long hit with someone, or for whatever reason, you might have had actual contact with them, you know, you bumped into them, or worse still, they've spoken to you and had a really good look at you, you could never, ever be seen on that job again. You know, you could never have any dealings up close with that person whatsoever. Because straight away they go, hang on a sec, I've seen this person before, you know. Um, so you need to be very, very careful. And we were, um, the first week of this three-week course was all about sort of foot follows and, and uh, um, very much in town centres and on foot. There was nothing to do with vehicles to start with. It was all about this sort of foot stuff. So you might think, well, that's easy. Well, it's easy in um, a bigger shop or a town. And, you know, it won't just be one of you following, you know, this person. It will be the whole dozen of you, you know, maybe more. There'll be a lot of people following this person. And the the control of that person, and by that I mean the person who is perhaps directly behind the target, will pass around very, very regularly between the team. Because you can't afford to have, you know, um, you following around the target literally sort of six feet behind them and they cross the road and you cross the road and they go in a shop and you go in the shop and they come out and you come in. Do you know what I mean? It, it just doesn't work. So the whole idea is this person is, is passed around amongst the team. Um, but what the instructors can do is make life really difficult for you they can uh, go out of their way um to to take you into awkward places and what's an awkward place well i can tell you that you know if it's a female target you're following and they walk into an underwear shop and they start looking around at all the you know sort of saucy lingerie you know and me as a sort of 24 year old um male walking around feeling incredibly uncomfortable. You know, that's the sort of places they'll take you to because there's only so long you can hang around in one of those stores before, you know, a member of staff's gonna come up to you and go, hi, can I help you, you know? And then then you've gotta come up with some cock and bull story about, oh, well, uh, yeah, I'm looking for my girlfriend. And But the problem is, if your target is listening into this conversation, they may be clocking you, they're looking at you, they're listening to you, they've heard your voice, they've heard this story, you know. Stories are okay, and you always need a cover story, but they have to be believable, and they have to be sort of checkable. So the classic is, if we were onto vehicles, and we were using, say, uh, a builder's van, uh, you know, or a pretend builder's van, and we would have, you know, a fluorescent jacket and a builder's hat slung in the front, and a copy of the newspaper, and a few old coffee cups, you know, and a screwed up bacon sandwich sort of um, wrapper or whatever, all on the dashboard so it looked the part. Generally, we'd always use a plain van. You wouldn't have, you know, Acme builders on the side and a telephone number. We did occasionally do that. And if you had to do that, there better be someone sitting on the end of that telephone. And it can't be, you know, the person who's following the target round. Because 
if they're suspicious at all, if they're switched onto surveillance, they look at this and go, mm, hang on a sec, I'm not sure about this van. I, I saw that last week, you know, because they've remembered the name. Something stood out about them in that van. Same for vehicles. You can't afford to have, you know, blacked out windows, lowered car with massive shiny chrome wheels or anything that's going to stick in their memory. You equally need, you know, the most plain basic car in, a, you know, in a grey colour, a dark colour, nothing that sort of attracts attention, no stickers on it, anything. Um, because if they pick up the phone and decide, you know what, I'm going to ring that builder, I don't trust it. If someone answers that phone and they better answer that phone, you know, there's no good them sort of then floundering when they say, hi, what sort of services do you offer? You know, it can't be someone who knows nothing about building and goes, oh, well, you know, we can... Um, we can like put bricks together and all sorts. You know, it needs to be someone who has some knowledge in that area that goes, yeah, sure. Well, what we offer is, you know, a complete building service, starting from, you know, the architect. We can new build. Do you know what I mean? They need to be able to hold that conversation and be believable, and um, you know, and friendly and taking details of the person. You know, that backstory has to be believable and and needs to be you know sort of covered if that phone call comes in. So we would generally avoid things like that at all. So one of the things we talked about on that first week of the course was was radio communications. You know, you have to be able to speak to your team. Now that's a really difficult one, or it was then, because nowadays I would imagine it's a lot easier. We're used to seeing people with, you know, microphones in in you know ears, you know, sort of um, Bluetooth things from your car, you know, with a dangling wire and a, and a microphone on it, and you've got a, an earpiece in. You know, that's quite common now um, for hands-free sort of cars kits. Well, at the time it wasn't. So um, it was always very difficult to speak on a radio. Um, we didn't, you know, we, we weren't really carrying mobile phones. So you could maybe get away with pulling that phone out of your pocket and updating on a radio, um, you know, like pretending like you're on your phone. Because what would happen is the microphone for the radio would be buried under your clothing somewhere. And the button you'd press to speak on the radio would be on a... Uh, a long wire that almost certainly was threaded through you know your trouser pocket so that you just had your hand in your pocket but you were able to press the button and talk just normally and and you had a you know a skin colored uh, earpiece in and the mic was buried in your clothes so outwardly there was no appearance but it wouldn't be a curly mic it wouldn't have like a curly wire going up to it like you're some uh, protection officer for you know a big movie star it would be a, a wireless one you know that had no um, external obvious sort of appearance um, so obviously if someone turns around if your target turns around and looks straight at you while you're giving an update on the radio they need to know why your lips are moving otherwise you look like somebody who's just talking to themselves and again that is obviously going to arouse suspicion and also make them remember you so if you're in a car for example you needed to be able to um, give an update on the radio um, probably bobbing your head to some imaginary music you know because if they see you in traffic and you're talking away to yourself it's going to make them suspicious but if you're moving your head you know in rhythm to this imaginary um song while you're giving your update then that's your cover you know uh, and that's quite difficult to achieve uh, I, I would never was particularly good at that um but uh, it was one thing we could do and saying nowadays probably a bit easier um so we talked some about awkward places and uh, i've got a story for you um, so again, what other awkward places could you have? Well, sex shops, you know, the city that I used to work in had a few, and again, they would walk you straight into a sex shop, you know, and they would go and ask the most awkward questions. And again, as a young guy, um, you felt really out of sorts in these places, um, but you had to try and be casual and be relaxed and what have you. And a friend of mine who did, um, 
his uh, surveillance course in a in a big city. You know, they'd love to take you into really busy places at rush hour. Um, but they took him, and also, you know, obviously you do surveillance at night, it's not just a day thing, so you could be going into bars and pubs and clubs, and you can't sit there with, you know, a soft drink. It needs to look the part, so you'd have to come up with um, some scenario of what you were drinking in there. So a certain amount of, of drinking was allowed very low level, because, you know, if you're all sat in this hard drinking pub, you know, with a with uh, orange juice on the go all night, you know, that might also attract suspicion. So um, in some scenarios, you know, sort of low level drinking was allowed. But my friend was on his course and um, he was from a public order team. And he's a fit guy, you know, was in the gym a lot. And the guy he was with was particularly muscly and, and sort of uh, fit guy. Now, I have to say, you know, they looked pretty straight. You know, they were straight blokes. They were wearing sort of straight clothes and... Um, there was nothing about them that kind of appeared gay in any way. But um, the target headed straight for the biggest gay bar in the town. And unfortunately, that was going to make them really uncomfortable, you know, classic sort of uncomfortable thing. So uh, the target goes into the bar. They walked up. They knew what the bar was. And they found a big sort of Eastern European doorman step in front of them. And he said to them, you know, look them up and down. You know, thought probably that they didn't look very gay to him. And they he kind of said is gay bar pointing to the bar behind him and they were like oh yeah we know yeah we're, we're all over that gay stuff yeah me and him were a couple you know and he kind of looked him up and down as if to say i don't think so you know but he was like well, okay in you go you know so they walked in and my friend was saying you know he had a really uncomfortable time of it um in this in this bar you know i mean for some people it wouldn't be an issue at all but but these guys you know testosterone fueled young guys from a public order team where everything is you know alpha male they found it very difficult and that obviously was the idea um so uh, that was one of the places they got taken into um trains and underground trains particularly really really difficult to do surveillance on um you have to be thinking ahead now i'm not going to give too much away here about any sort of tactics but i can give you a little flavor so on the train uh, you're going to need people on that train for sure um, you're going to need people to to stay on the platform because there's a chance the person might get off at the last second, particularly if they're trying to do anti-surveillance. So you're going to need to leave one of the team on the platform. When they first go into the train station, you need someone in the queue behind them if they're queuing up for a ticket or if they go into a ticket machine because we have to clock where is that person buying a ticket to, either hearing them ask for you know a single to London or seeing it on a computer screen I'm going to you know Heathrow Airport or wherever it is because they immediately need to be putting out to the team because now you've got someone in a car somewhere looking at a map, seeing where that train line goes to because again, you've now got to get cars leapfrogging ahead and having someone at every single station on that train line where that train stops because there's a risk that, you know, if you've got no one on that platform and no one in the car park, that train stops. We don't know where this person's going to. They might have bought a ticket to Heathrow. It doesn't mean they're going there. It might be they're going to stop, you know, three stops before and get off. So you have to cover all those options. So by now, this is where the panic comes. You've got cars driving fast to get ahead of this train and be at these platforms and waiting when it comes in. So trains is, is quite a difficult one. And as I say, the favourite trick of an instructor on a course will be let's take them in rush hour, you know, because it's going to make it so much more difficult with a lot of people about um, so first week was very much on foot and, uh, in, you know, in, and um, in busy town centres and awkward places like we've discussed. Um, weeks two and three were very much about cars. Um, 
Now, nowadays, they've got airwave radios and, uh, you know, they're really secure. As far as I know, they kind of pretty much can't be patched into. But when I was doing this course, you know, the radios were a bit rubbish. So um, the surveillance team had a complete different language they could use that no one would know, know what they were saying. Now, again, I'm, you know, they might still use it. So I'm not going to give you the, the details of what it's about. But for example, um, if I was following someone, I might put up an update of... Uh, you know, Papa's 5-3 or Papa's 5-5 five five with 5-3, five blue, yellow, 6. You know, that means nothing to anyone. Um, although you can imagine if you're walking past a member of the public saying it, they're going to be like, what the hell? You know, but invariably that would be said in a car. Now, you'd be thinking, well, what did you just say? You know, but for anyone who knows the code, they would know that I've just said I am the control person, i.e. I am directly behind that vehicle or I'm maybe one or two cars back from it. So I'm the one who's got the eyeball on the target. Um, and I'd be telling the team where I was heading for roughly. As I say, I'm not going to go into how the breakdown of that code is, but um, basically, if our radio system was hacked into, the fact that we were talking in code, uh, no one would ever know what you were saying. So that was quite clever. Um, and so this course went on, and we were taught a lot of tactics. You know, a full surveillance team could easily be a dozen people or a dozen cars with two in each, you know. Um, at the time, we didn't have GPSs. You'd be saying, well, why didn't we put tracking devices in the cars? Well, this was all about a surveillance course, but obviously that was an option. And certainly we would say if there was a particularly high-level target or there was someone who was very good at anti-surveillance, we would, and the term we would use, we would lump up their car. We would put a lump on their car, and that would be a tracking device. And then you'd be able to see it a couple of miles off with a laptop following them on a screen. It was quite rare then because it was new technology. Nowadays, it's probably a lot easier and they possibly do all surveillance like it although you're still going to need eyes on a target because you never know you know what they're going to do they might meet someone they might pass someone something you know particularly if it was a firearm or drugs or something you know your whole case could sort of hinge on it um, and you also need to be in a position to actually potentially get some sort of video footage of that because you need the evidence ideally you know yes you seeing it with your you know your colleague might be enough but you know even better evidence is if you can film it so quite difficult to achieve and what we did was on the final um the final few days of the course final three days once we got to the end of the course was they said um there's a target coming in uh, he's flying in um, to the airport from Belfast and here's his picture. He comes in on this flight over to you, follow him for three days and, you know, and then report back. And that was it. That was the final exercise. So we sat at the airport and we all had this guy's photo. And by now, you know, we were thinking we were pretty good at this surveillance lark. And um, and that's what we did. Basically, the guy came off the plane, he came through the airport, then he got and they incorporated it all. You know, he got on the train, he went into a busy city at rush hour you know then he got a hire vehicle he got in his vehicle then he went to a hotel you know you, then he went for a walk through the town center yes of course he visited underwear shops sex shops you know almost certainly went in a gay bar as well from what i remember you know he just all these awkward places it, the whole lot was thrown at you for this final exercise so we followed him for three days and um, both in vehicle on foot you know into restaurants bars um shops you know you name it and we stuck with him. And then at the end of the three-day uh, exercise, basically they told us that that is the end of it. Now, we'd been working, you know, minimum of 12-hour days, sometimes 15 or 20 hours. So for three weeks, you know, we were absolutely hanging out at this point. You know, we were very, very tired. And, of course, that's exactly what they wanted, you know, for us to make mistakes and, like I say, be bitching at each other, basically. Um, so we were, we were looked at very closely. And at the end of the course, um, we were invited into this room and the dozen of us sat around in like a horseshoe shape. 
and then the target was um, that we'd been following for those last three days through the airport and what have you, came into the room and he sat down and he explained who he was. And he was an undercover operative from Northern Ireland and this was the time during the Northern Ireland troubles were at their height. Um, and he said, you know, pleased to meet you. Uh, I've seen some of you about, I'm just gonna detail what I know. Now, like I say, remember, we're three weeks into course here, so we think we're the daddies, you know, we are, we are good at this stuff and I doubt he even saw us, you know. So he got this little notebook out and he opened up this notebook and he started at one side of the, the room and he said, okay, so I got off the plane and I came through the airport and at, he gave a time, you know, 15.07, I saw you and he pointed to someone in the room and you were with her. You were wearing a red jumper, he had a black jacket on. Um, so, you know, we're kind of thinking, oh no, he's clocked a couple of people, you know. So it would go on. Anyway, he would continue on literally through the three days, minute by minute, and then we went on to so-and-so bar. I picked the car up, I saw you in a red Vauxhall Astra and the registration number was so-and-so. And then uh, you got out of, you know, a blue Mondeo registration, such and such, and you followed me for 10 minutes until I went into so-and-so shop and then you passed the the eyeball over to so-and-so you know this is how it went on and and a couple of us initially were feeling smug that we hadn't been picked out let me tell you by the end of that half an hour debrief every single person had been picked out probably three or four times each all the vehicles we use all the registrations what clothes we were wearing everything and we were completely crestfallen you know it was a real sort of shock to us um, but this guy was good. And at the end of it, he said, look, don't be too disheartened. He said, if I get this wrong, it's my life on the line. You know, if I get this wrong in Belfast, I'm a dead man. So I have to be good at what I do. Um, and that was echoed by the instructors. Um, so he then went on his way. Uh, and basically we were informed of who had and hadn't passed the course. We were individually taken into a room to be told. Now, the dozen of us, I think, maybe two or three were considered good enough to go on to the county team and possibly onto a national team. You know, they were good. And to be honest with you, amongst us, we knew who the good ones were. Um, I also knew it probably wasn't me. Um, so I was told that I passed the course, but I wasn't good enough to go on to the county team or the national team. They said, we could use you locally to assist, but, but generally, you know, you're not for us, you know. So it was a bit um, disheartening to say the least. But the reality was, they said, your problem is you look like a cop. You know, you, you, are, you stand tall, you have a short haircut, you walk around and you're kind of eyes about. These other people that have passed, not only are they good at what they do, but they have the ability to slouch around and generally look disinterested and, and have the total opposite appearance of a police officer. But unfortunately, I didn't. You know, I walked around standing up straight, looking about with my short haircut and, and generally looked like someone who was, you know, sort of not on a mission, but, you know, um, I just found it very difficult to relax. And I wasn't really aware of it until I'd been on this course. So it was quite interesting to be told it, although a little, as I say, um, uh, you know, I felt like I'd let myself down a bit. But at the end of the day, it's not for everyone, you know, and I would go on to do a lot of surveillance, um, but on different teams and in different ways. And we'll cover that in another episode. But it's a fantastic course. Really, really interesting. I've got the utmost respect for the people that pass and, and work on those surveillance teams day in, day out, you know. Um, I can almost guarantee that if you were being uh, surveilled, you would be unaware of it. Um, they're very, very good at what they do. Um, and I was certainly to, to do a lot of work with them when I worked on the firearms. Um, but we'll come on to that another time.
So there we go, episode 25. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope it was interesting, a little bit different from normal. Next week, I go back to division and do the normal police work, and I've got a couple of uh, goodies for you. And then very shortly after that, we're going to get into some of the firearm stuff uh, because I started doing some of the armed courses. But thanks for listening. Thanks for the downloads. Please uh, tell anyone else you think might be interested in Police Stories podcast. Going to continue on um, for some time yet. Yeah, you may or may not be pleased to hear. But uh, I'll speak to you again soon. Thanks very much. Cheers. Bye.